Good afternoon and welcome to bringing security along for your journey to the cloud, a health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by iGel Technology. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box, and we will take those later in the program. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, we're going to go about 35, 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Todd Bell. CISO and Executive Director, IT Compliance with ValleyWise Health. Sahan Fernando, C CISO at Radies Children's Hospital in San Diego. And Chris Feeney, Healthcare Workflow Specialist with iGel Technology. And then we will have our audience, audience Q&A. So let's jump right in. Uh, we have a lot to talk about today. Todd, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Yeah, so uh, Todd Bell, a cyber chief here for Valleywise Health for a safety net uh, hospital and also a bird facility. And so we're in very hot uh, Phoenix, Arizona. So uh, it's been a very interesting journey these past couple of years between COVID and now we have the Ukraine issues and uh, plenty of cybersecurity challenges for us right now. Great. So lots to talk about. Sahan? Hey, good morning. Uh, my name is Sahan Fernando. I am the Chief Information Security Officer for Rady Children's. Uh, we are over 500 pediatric beds uh, throughout the San Diego, uh, Southern California area. Pediatric health system focusing on um, you know, acute care, whole, rapid whole genome sequencing, and other areas of uh, pediatric health. Very good. Thank you, Chris. Uh, greetings, everybody. Uh, Chris Feeney with iGel Technology. Uh, I've spent a lot of years in the healthcare space, uh, both here at iGel and before. Uh, and a lot of that just in the end user computing capacity, uh, focusing on understanding those digital workflows uh, that users have when they walk up, in particular on shared machines, which are pretty rampant throughout healthcare. Um, iGel itself is actually a 20 year old company. Uh, not many uh, people know that. Uh, we just recently celebrated 20 years. Uh, and the founder really kind of focused on building, uh, having has a vision for, uh, you know, the fact that the world's going to need an operating system for the internet, uh, an inherently untrusted environment. And so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of that, and, and uh, you'll hear a little bit more about as we go, but looking forward to the conversation today. All right. Very good. Let's jump right in. Todd, we're going to start with you. Describe the options organizations have today around where to host their applications, Vendor-specific, public, private, hybrid, multi, on-prem. What are the security, what are the benefits and security considerations of each? Well, you know, I've been in both camps here. In my previous role, I was in a 100% cloud uh, fintech. And here I am in a very predominantly uh, on-premise environment. And so it's quite a switch. And uh, obviously, we're trying to become more hybrid. And... You know what, I think that what's happening right now in healthcare, we have a lot of stuff going on as far as uh, our elective surgeries are down, our healthcare costs are going up from a labor perspective. And the reason why I bring that up is that I think we're being forced into the cloud. And so uh, we might enjoy being on premise, but I think that 
organizations that are in healthcare are being forced because of the uh, benefits of the cloud. Because the reality is that a lot of these cloud providers, whether it's Google, uh, AWS, or Azure, uh, I'm very comfortable putting my data out there because they do a great job protecting the data. But they also have these frameworks that are already pre-built for an organization, whether it be for a blueprint for HIPAA, uh, for a, a healthcare organization, as an example. So there's a lot of templates that they know how to operate in our compliance space. So I'm very pro-cloud. Doc, give me, uh, help me understand something because there's you know, a lot of confusing stuff with this. Do you get a company, and I'm using Cerner for example, because I believe they do offer, they will host Cerner for you, right? At mm -hmm. Cerner. So then you don't need Google, AWS, or Azure, correct? You're, you're using Cerner hosted by Cerner. Now you could use it hosted by Cerner, or you could use, you could host it on prem, mm -hmm. or you could manage it and host it in one of the three you mentioned, Google, AWS, or Azure. Is that correct? You have all those options? Yes, you usually do. And, and you can say the same for uh, Epic is almost there as well. And so uh, what I've learned is that you're better going with a subscription model uh, because this way uh, it doesn't require all the IT resources of being able to have to stand up the environment, manage it, operate it, and monitor it. So. There's just a cost savings benefit going to a subscription model of letting them manage the environment and you subscribe to that service. So I'm very pro uh, in that camp because that's what we do with a lot of our applications is that we really do see uh, more and more of our physicians demanding wanting to use new types of services, but these are really subscriptions that we're paying for, yet for the rest of our infrastructure we are exploring the Azure environment or AWS. And so, you know, it's kind of an either or situation depending on what the use case is. And so, but as we keep adding on more applications, we're really starting to see the trend towards uh, subscription models. So if you have uh, an application you want to use, you would, and the vendor offered a model where they host it and it's a subscription, you're inclined to go with that. And for, is it for those applications where they don't offer that option? Therefore, you're either going to host it on-prem or you're going to host it in one of the big three? That's correct. Okay. You're absolutely right. And so there are some vendors out there that aren't quite there yet. They have a subscription model where they still have an on-prem. Uh, you know, they still uh, get the licenses for software. And so you can either do on-prem or choose one of the cloud providers and set up an application environment on your own. But I always encourage people to go with the subscription model because it's just less overhead. And right now, we're all being pressured to reduce our costs right now. All right, uh, Sahan, uh, your thoughts on the question or anything Todd has said or, or not addressed? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, some great points in there that I'd love to expand on and, and add to. Uh, number one, uh, I think there is definitely a lot of pressure from the vendors that we work with. Um, yeah, not negative pressure, but just they are changing it to where it is more of that subscription model. And so uh, a lot of organizations have at that preference towards capital costs. And I think there was a lot of uh, modeling around being able to use capital funds for these big IT projects and workloads. And we can't necessarily do that anymore, right? You can't capitalize uh, certain things that you're used to, um, licensing for servers and 
and other other items like that. And so there is that paradigm shift on from the financial standpoint that you touched on, Todd, of uh, how do we adapt and continue driving value? Uh, you know, I, we also tend to look first at how do we strategically decide on where to put an application. And, uh, you know, if we were to look at the CIA triad, right, confidentiality, integrity, and availability, one of the biggest things for us is that that availability component, we can outsource the risk and the cost of having high uptime for mission critical applications to a vendor that has the ability to scale. So with the, the big three uh, and any applications built on that infrastructure, they are in a position to provide a higher uptime guarantee for those applications for us than we are able to provide internally. Uh, and that's, that's okay. Uh, there are some applications for that reason that we go either completely SaaS or we do hybrid model uh, for whatever reason, especially with some of our clinical workflows where maybe from a latency standpoint, we still need to run on site or cost wise. So uh, there's, there's that component that we look at as a benefit. And then also uh, from a security standpoint, I also, when we evaluate a new vendor, you know, we do a risk assessment, we have third-party risk management in place. And so when we're evaluating what controls they have, what processes they have, how they're structured, uh, it also allows us to then let them specialize in keeping their specific product and environment secure, doing, you know, secure coding, doing web application tests, uh, items like that, that would be more difficult or impractical for us to do, uh, especially on a regular basis. Uh, and so there's, there's also that advantage. Um, so those, those are some benefits that we really look at. Uh, and it's, it's a big shift, especially if you do have everything in data center. Those are not easy migrations. I still remember even doing the physical to virtual migrations a decade ago. Uh, as difficult as that was, um, while you should embrace the cloud, I also say very much go in with the strategy, not figuring it out as you go. So Han, if you if if there are applications where the vendor is offering uh, to host it and a subscription model, are there times when you opt not to take advantage of that and to either host it yourself on prem or to manage it in in one of the big three yourself? So great question. I think the biggest example currently is that uh, Epic does offer Epic has Epic hosting. Uh, and we are evaluating that, but currently we are on premises, uh, you know, and there's a myriad of reasons that we've uh, structured it that way. Some of it just going back to the initial go live. And that is a big shift in how we have Epic deployed if we were to go that route. Uh, a lot of benefits, um, that's a cost change. Uh, and so I think that to make sure I'm answering your question, you know, we, we really do evaluate it on what's the need. Is it more cost efficient? What does this look like from an availability standpoint? Uh, are there any risks from an integrity or confidentiality perspective? Uh, we thankfully were able to work with some partners on as we started using cloud technologies and having our, our own VPCs essentially, uh, what was the process around that? What were the controls so that we didn't have things like databases on the internet or you know, by in theory, if we were using AWS, having open S3 buckets, things like that, that are a lot harder to go back and clean up. Uh, we were able to set it up from the beginning. So, Chris, um, it, it sounds like it's a process of, you know, okay, 
vendor X that we're looking at, they, they host, they're willing to host it in a subscription model. Um, we have to check them out and make sure we have confidence in their ability to do so uh, with a lot of availability and security. And we're comfortable if we like the software, but we're not quite sure that their hosting performance would be up to snuff. Then we're going to take that on ourselves, either on premise or we're going to manage it ourselves in space we're we're using in one of the big three. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, I was just thinking, just listening to Todd and Han, just the journey that I saw customers go on uh, for me in the last 15 plus years easily. Uh, I'll take CERN as an example. Uh, when we first, uh, the company I was with prior to IGEL, we, we, they were the first big EMR vendor that we began to work with. And a lot of their customers were on-prem. Uh, but then they started to build out this um, remote hosted option. And we saw net new customers. That was all that they were doing. And then we saw on-prem. I remember one of my biggest one was in North Carolina. They literally put the database on semi-trucks and shipped it out to Kansas City. And I've been to Kansas City and I've seen this massive data center. Uh, and just seeing them go through that process, uh, definitely a journey. But then uh, the rise of Epic and, and uh, traditionally on-prem EMR, uh, and then they began to to uh, offer that hosting option, you know, through Citrix technology, for example. But uh, but then the rise of these public cloud infrastructures. I remember five or six years ago, I, I went to a lot of these, uh, you know, the Citrix synergies, the VM worlds, and I kept hearing more about Azure this. And and my the biggest question I had was, when is healthcare going to shift to the cloud? When is a, a Todd, for example, going to be comfortable putting his data in the cloud? Uh, the company's data in the cloud. And a lot of it had to do with compliance and some of the things that Sauron uh, touched on, the CIA. Um, I, uh, uh, but we've, we're now there. And, and then you have a pandemic that kind of forces you to rethink how you do things when you know your elective surgeries are all of a sudden dropping and that uh, revenue stream needs to be rethought. So I echo a lot of the things that I've just mentioned here. I've seen these customers go through that journey. And uh, the nice thing is, these data centers that are in the cloud were getting all built out in the last 10 plus years. Amazon had a head start. Microsoft is <laughs> right on par with them. And I mean, when I came to IGEL, we focused, I focused on federal. And if the federal government trusts putting top secret SCI information in the cloud, healthcare probably is okay with it too. <laughs> so. Mm -hmm. Todd, you, you, you know, you, and, and Chris, everyone's talking about, um, cost pressures forcing people to, to evaluate the cloud and move to the cloud. Is it always uh, cost beneficial to do so, Todd, or does it depend? Well, you know what? I, I look at some of our outages uh, that we have within our organization and outside of our organization. And when it just comes from a uh, scalability perspective, the monitoring perspective, you just can't beat it. And, and the reality is that cloud is better than uh, our on-prem environments, they just do a better job at it. And people have to become comfortable with that fact. And so I'm there, uh, but not everybody is there. You know, I still see people that are apprehensive about it. There's a lot of uh, misconceptions about cloud, but there's also another hidden benefit about cloud. And, you know, I'm going through budget cycle right now, and I've been seeing a lot of my software costs go up anywhere from 20 to almost 50%. And these are some on-premise uh, you know, software environments that we have. 
And I talked to my peers and I tried to get their perspectives and I'm like, what the heck is going on here? And what we're finding now is that by staying on prem, it actually works against us because it doesn't give us leverage to be able to switch a provider. And so what I mean by that is if we were in the cloud with more of our applications, we would have better flexibility to switch vendors if we wanted to. So uh, as we see these costs uh, skyrocketing from a, a software hardware perspective, it would give us more options uh, to find more optimal solutions versus being vulnerable of having on-prem software because after all having that does cost more for a vendor versus if it was hosted in the cloud. So it gives you uh, more flexibility and more influence with the vendor because you can move more easily. Absolutely. Uh, versus, you know, being, uh, you know, being on-prem, boy, talking about stickiness, uh, mm -hmm. that's amazing from a sales perspective, but cloud, it gives you the ability to, yeah, I might lose uh, maybe 30 or maybe $100,000, but I might be saving $200,000 by switching. Sahan, I'd like your thoughts on that. Yeah, that, those are some, definitely some great perspectives. I think uh, I would I would especially agree with there. There are people all along the spectrum of comfort there, uh, whether it's from a cost standpoint or if they still see the traditional network boundary as uh, what they should be focusing on, uh, which you know, I, I don't agree with uh, candidly. But uh, I think that the stickiness is a huge factor. And then if you look at where are they looking to innovate in and continue driving value, and we'll just use Microsoft as, uh, as an example, right? They're putting more of their resources and adding, adding value, adding functionality features, um, expanding API capabilities, integrations, all of that is on the cloud side, you know, through M365 and Azure and other offerings versus uh, your more traditional deployments, right? Uh, you know, while Windows Server still, gets its upgrades and teams are doing great work there. Uh, it seems like more resources are going into their offerings that are hosted software as a service, more tied into that and really looking at how do they drive value from that perspective. Chris, any thoughts there? Yeah, I think uh, a couple of things, right? Uh, the flexibility, um, what we are at IGEL are seeing is going back to my uh, opening statement, uh, having a operating system that is pretty agnostic and allowing you to get to wherever you need to go. A lot of these environments are accessible through some kind of client. Maybe it's uh, VMware, Citrix, uh, Microsoft technology, browser-based, whatever it might be. Uh, knowing that you have uh, a solution that will give you that flexibility if you decide that, you know what, we are going to make a shift, as Todd was alluding to, and we're not going to be, be stuck in this uh, contract any further, we're going to switch and move over and do, also be able to do it seamlessly. But I think the biggest thing too is there's a trust factor, you know, by switching to those environments, obviously the, this, a lot of security comes to mind. Uh, I came from the, I started my career in, in uh, the DOD side of things. And so physical security of the information, those files and stuff like that comes to mind. But if you look at some of these data centers, they are very well protected and very well robust and redundant and that type of thing. So there's a lot of those, we've got that checkbox covered. Um, and then of course, um, you know, the user experience, 
the end of the day, do they really know that the data is coming from the cloud? They don't have to. They shouldn't know. They should be able to walk up, do their job, and and focus on where they went to school to do medicine and patient care. And that's really, I think, the the driving factor is make it a great user experience and uh, giving IT all the flexibility to deliver that. Um, I'd, I'd like to at some point touch on the fact that these guys are dealing with cyber attacks and having a cloud option to mitigate if something gets uh, attacked. That's also a, a, a solution that we have seen customers rely on for the cloud, be able to quickly bring a device back up, but switch over to a backup option or something. So if well, there's time for that. It. Yeah, let's talk about it now. So that's sort of a business continuity angle. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, we've had like at Hims, we just were, you know, a few months ago there and we had one very large Epic customer. They came to us and uh, it, the conversation was really just about um, disaster recovery and going through an exercise every few months to make sure that if something happens, what what is our plan? What are we going to do? And for him, it was all about uh, getting to a cloud-based environment. So building it up, turning it on, shutting it down, you know, but then having a, a way to be able to, in our case, we pop in uh, what we call our UD pocket into a device that was seemingly infected uh, and quickly, when just in a couple minutes, be able to get you to that backup site. So the downtime factor was mitigated, essentially. So these are all kind of types of, maybe that's his first step to the cloud, and then maybe eventually they shift to on-prem or shift on-prem to fully cloud. Uh, but to know that that is an option in case there is an attack, certainly it's reactive base, but certainly we have a lot of proactive conversations around around that as well. Sahan, what are your thoughts on the disaster recovery angle of the cloud here? I mean, it, it's, it's a huge benefit. And uh, in my personal journey, I think that was the first area I saw uh, a lot of value. I was definitely a skeptic uh, when it really started to first come about. Uh, and that was a big thing for me to really wrap my head around is how to how to operate in the new world from an InfoSec standpoint. And uh, the Epic thing is a really, really salient example because uh, at XGM just two months ago, uh, talking with some of my co-speakers, uh, two people presented on their experiences through ransomware attacks and uh, how that experience really uh, tested what they what their assumptions were, what they actually were able to do. Uh, and one of them was an Epic hosted customer. And that was a huge driver of continuity and care for them. Uh, you know, the outage was still incredibly difficult, but they still had a functioning EMR. And it was really more about the endpoint side rather than the entire infrastructure area. And so there is that risk analysis of what can we afford what has the organization decided is an acceptable downtime? Because if you're not in the cloud, how, how long does it take to restore your backups? Uh, can you actually restore all your backups at once? That's a lot of disks doing a lot of read-write cycles. Um, I think, Chris, you mentioned, are your backups also compromised? That's also uh, an assumption you need to uh, validate, you know, whether that's true or false. Uh, but from a cloud standpoint, it is easy to, to quickly scale and have a redundant hot cold site, uh, depending again on how fault tolerant you want to be, really spread across multiple availability zones and geographic regions. Uh, you know, there's a lot of flexibility and value that you can show and provide and at least kind of guide the other stakeholders through here are all of our different options. What are we comfortable with? Literally start with our foundation of 
what is acceptable, what can we still do from a patient care standpoint during downtime, and then work backwards from what are we willing to invest in from a disaster recovery business continuity standpoints standpoint uh, and map it out and then figure out how does the cloud really empower those outcomes, uh, likely in a cost-effective way. I mean, storage is so cheap in particular in the cloud. There's so much benefit in going that route. Todd? Yeah, you know, Chris, I liked our Kubernetes uh, concept uh, for cloud. And so I'm going to run with that. Uh, there's some things I might want to do with that. But, you know, we've been spending a lot of time from a ransomware perspective of readiness. And I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Kronos, we got the living daylights knocked out of us. Uh, that hurt us really, really bad. And here is a situation where that was cloud-based. And... That killed us. We lost well over a million bucks in that uh, situation because it's so integrated. That was a cloud application impacted by a ransomware event. And you know who wasn't impacted? The people that had on-premise Kronos. <laughs> and so that was one time I wish that it was the other way around. Uh, but uh, yeah, you, you know, there's uh, pros and cons to this, but I think it comes down to uh, vetting your third-party vendors and making sure that they have good cyber hygiene in place. And I might have some sharp opinions, but it's probably best I keep those to myself. Uh, but the reality is kind of what Sahan has talked about is the uh, third-party assessments. And, you know, we really do kick the tires on that because we can't have that happen again. That hurt us uh, really bad because now we're asking ourselves the question of who's next, you know, for one of our critical applications. So Todd, you're you're a big proponent of the cloud, uh, but you you can admit that it, it didn't work out in this particular instance. Um, now you mentioned vetting third-party vendors. Did this experience refine or improve your vetting process? Is there any amount of vetting that would have prevented you from using? And I know this is not a small vendor. So is there any amount of vetting that would have prevented you from using this vendor? at the time so to speak uh, well you know what it, it goes back to it was one of these really kind of older contracts in place we had time clocks all over the place you know for people punch in for the hourly folks and so it was deeply embedded in our organization but what i learned from that situation is we did modify our contracts process and now we're requiring our vendors to do like uh source code scans uh we want to make sure you have your house in order uh, and also following uh, some of the NIST uh, standards as well, because we have uh, kind of, we're hitting the spectrum. We have some vendors that are amazing, that are high trust certified, and I'm just like, that is fantastic. And then you have people that just, uh, you know, they just built an app, trying to make a quick buck. Cybersecurity is last on the list, and it's kind of a reckless application. You know, they're just trying to hurry up and make money off of it because it's some little startup. And so we hit both ends of the spectrums. And so this is why we go through our vetting process to not end up in a situation like Kronos. And so uh, anything net new, boy, we are just scrutinizing the heck out of it. John? Yeah. So I, I agree so much. And that <laughs> looked like a very painful exercise. I was thankful we didn't have to go through that. Uh you know, during during our risk assessment process, you know, we, we have a questionnaire. We try and keep it simple because I hate filling out the ones that are 250 questions long. 
Um, you know, there, there's definitely the other side of the, the equation of, are you, are you just asking questions and not necessarily taking the output and looking at it in a qualified lens? What, what are some hills to die on for you? Cause I think there's that context of, you know, certain findings are certainly scored higher than others. And we advise on, you know, Hey, this is a real risk. Um, a, a relevant example is recently, uh, one of our modalities was looking at an application and they have so far refused to do third-party testing. They insist that their internal testing is adequate. Uh, you know, and so we're having that conversation with, with the organization essentially of, are we really comfortable putting this very sensitive PHI in a vendor that isn't willing to invest in kind of these basic, basic areas of a foundational security program. So I'm curious, Todd, what things for you are really almost non-negotiables essentially are really things that you, you stress to your stakeholders. Well, what we've learned is that you get a lot of these little um, startups that come along and they can get something stuck very quickly and boom, we're going in healthcare. And you can take a lot of shortcuts uh, in a cloud environment. And one of those uh, shortcuts can be uh, commingling data with uh, multiple customers and throwing it into one database versus having separate database instances. And because if you're in that situation, one client gets compromised, they all get compromised. And so we look for those types of situations where if something that is going to lead to a HIPAA violation for us, then I can go die on the hill for that. And every once in a great while, we have to go back and recommend, can you please find a different vendor in the space? And we give our rationale behind it and what the risks and the potential ramifications are. That's great stuff. Chris, any thoughts there? Yeah, I was just thinking about these are some lessons learned from my my days, uh, uh, certainly at IGEL, but also before learning healthcare. You know, the vendor, if you don't understand healthcare, you don't understand how they operate. Uh, and they're taking a risk by putting, you know, whether it's on-prem or in the cloud, uh, you know, just listening to both Todd and Sahan, you know, do they have that? healthcare experience, do they understand what is really at stake? You know, when you hear stories of hospitals having to take patients and send them elsewhere, at the end of the day, put yourself in their shoes. They have to be able to provide patient care. They have to understand that this is a 24-7 environment. Uh, if they if they aren't taking the, uh, the time and effort to really, you know, make it such that healthcare customers can succeed by using their solutions, uh, that is really a red flag, uh, you know, and, and they should be committed to that uh, because unacceptable downtime or whether it's the time clock, can't check in, can't get paid, all those things, uh, they do matter at the end of the day. And so that would be my my comments on this uh, particular segment. All right, let's uh, move on a little. Let's talk about network and access considerations around cloud hosting. Chris, I'm going to start with you here. Admittedly, not a true expert on this, but I will say, um, from you know, just from my my CISSP days and like that, I mean, you, some of those building blocks don't really go away. It's just new technology, different place. Uh, I'm very impressed with uh, uh, certainly. I'll, I'll use Azure as an example. Their portal. There's lots of options there uh, in terms of how you can break things out um, networking wise. Uh, segment things off um, 
whether it's uh, a multi-tenant kind of situation or uh, as, as some of the others have, have mentioned, you know, just making sure that that database is not being uh, utilized for multiple companies, um, but also who has access to be able to go in there and make changes, uh, whether it's a DNS change that takes the internet down or, <laughs> sorry, it has happened, I think, somewhere along the way. Uh, but, uh, but, but all those have to be, and then of course, training, uh, are the people that are actually managing and hosting and providing these things, are they, are they trained to know how to do their job? Uh, I'll just kind of pause there. Cause I'd rather hear from Todd and Sahan on, on their experience here. Sahan. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I a hundred percent agree with the training, uh, that is a big, uh, a big thing that make sure that it's not just lip service. I feel, um, you know, I've been very fortunate to have some hands-on experience and that's all, all great, but taking the time to go through those courses, really engage and go through the documentation. And if we're going to stick with um, the Microsoft example, right. I mean, there's great documentation there that will walk you through so much of it uh, and really give you the opportunity to understand how you're doing things, um, you know, from a, an access consideration, network consideration at, you know, Chris, to your point, there are so many ways that you can segment out and still have good segmentation, good, you know, boundaries as needed, uh, you know, within your own VPCs, however you set it up, uh, how you're handling access and privilege. I mean, doing, you know, PAM and PIM, you know, privilege access management and identity management within Azure, very easy to be able to check out roles, things like that, uh, which, I personally love way easier than doing it on premise. That's for sure. Um, and then I think the other part too is, uh, you know, things like Azure AD at proxy, that's a huge benefit, you know, having that sort of WAF technology, but tying things back to your identity as the gateway before you're able to explore applications, but also taking away those availability risks quite a bit. And then also, um, you know, being able to enforce multi-factor authentication, be able to apply some of those security tool sets behind the scenes, things like Microsoft's algorithm around risky sign-ins and additional, uh, you know, telemetry sources that you gain from that. Uh, that's, I mean, that's massive. And uh, then also it's one less app that people need a direct VPN connection into your network for, for instance. So that uh, that's another thing, right? I mean, there's plenty of examples of uh, ransomware attacks where they start with someone went to their personal email on a work computer. So they weren't, the organization wasn't the intended target, but that still led to a ransomware attack, uh, on, on their network because they had VPN dialed in after, you know, reacting to a phishing email and, and suddenly you have a huge problem versus app proxy really lowers those direct kind of unfiltered connections, uh, and outsources the risk Again, back to someone who can do it a little bit more at scale. Um, sorry, Todd, go ahead. Oh, no, no. It, you know, for us, it, it, it's a stumbling block from a training perspective. So, Chris, I think that's very insightful because uh, one of the challenges, you know, I really like Azure. Uh, but the second you start to get into and figured out, you know, you log in a week later and some of the features or functions have shifted to other panes. And then you're like, where the heck did that go? Hmm. You're, you're always kind of having to relearn the environment. Happened and, yesterday to me. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. So it drives me a little nuts on that. Uh, but, uh, you know, to uh, Sahan's um, comments about there's just so many benefits, the infrastructure as a service, and just 
you know, even the passwordless strategy, I did that in my last job as well. And also being able to identify the conditional access and types of sign-ins. And there's just a lot of huge things that I can do from a cloud perspective than I could from a non-prep perspective because we have a lot of that plumbing already in place. And so I think it's almost kind of like the dream architecture that you always wanted, but you can really not quite build it out in your on-prem environment because it just it takes so much time, money, and resources and care and feeding on it. All right, next question. Please discuss endpoint and device security in cloud hosting arrangements. How do you balance usability with security in this area? Todd, let's stick with you. Well, you know what? Traditional boundaries have changed. Obviously, we got the work from home. Uh, I think we all are uh, work from home, even on this call right now. And so what we recognize is that not only just trusting the device on the uh, connecting back to us, but also trusting the individual as well. So we have two components there because we know our boundaries have changed and our boundaries are now everywhere and, and even overseas now. And so that's why we're having to do uh, more of our conditional access uh, for folks to being able to manage those riskier uh, logins. But we've also adapted uh, our boundary is now beyond just the traditional firewall. Chris? Yeah, uh, for those that are seeing my <clears throat> virtual background, the black uh, one here is is really describing this this new world that we live in where a device needs to be able to manage, be managed uh, securely from anywhere, whether they're in the office, out of the office, on vacation, whatever it might be. And, and certainly we saw a rise and uptick in that, but uh, not requiring VPN either, but um, and then being able to control what are they getting to uh, and controlling what that user experience is is going to be. Uh, are we going to implement this brand new uh, cloud-based uh, uh, application that we just uh, spun up because uh, we had to for whatever reason. Maybe uh, we decided to cut that contract off from that payroll vendor and fire up a new one instead. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the, now we just push out a new icon or something, but being able to control that is key. Um, and, and being an endpoint vendor, I spent a lot of my time focusing on on some of those challenges and uh, especially getting to a virtual workspace, whether it's uh, through a browser or some other form factor client-wise. But um, uh, but I think the really key thing is, is uh, having security in mind. Do you trust where they're coming from and there's a lot of things we've kind of talked about how to you know identify that i know if i'm coming from uh, a laptop and it recognizes hey i'm not sure that's you is it really you you know that, that adaptive type uh whether it's my banking app or something else um i appreciate that to be honest i would rather that happen than not and next thing i know i have no money in the bank whatever <laughs> <laughs> that would be bad um, but uh, but then at the end of the day, can they do their job? Uh, are they having good user experience? Are they able to do things like what we're doing here? These these uh, this world of virtual communication and in collaboration um, uh, that really all has to be thought through. But but to be able to know that if it's this device sitting behind me, sort of, and I'm accessing this environment, and then uh, I know that it, it's uh, been locked down from being compromised. So I'll pause there. I think. Uh, Sahan, maybe you're Todd. Uh, yeah, I mean, the only thing I would add on that too is uh, something we've really been trying to stress with our, our users is that 
you know, with this more distributed environment, uh, there are a lot of folks that do want to use BYOD. And uh, if you were to use the Citrix example, right, log into Citrix workspace from a personal device and do things like that. Uh, and so there is that usability, there's that cost benefit, right? The org isn't buying a whole bunch of endpoints uh, for users to take home. Uh, those aren't assets that they have to technically go and patch. But uh, the other side of that equation is how are you validating identity and also the security of that device itself? Uh, what capabilities do you have and how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go? Because uh, it's great that they're using a, a personal device and you're saving some money, but is the flip side of that of, well, they're local admin on that and they install all of this crazy software on there and they have Redline on there unknowingly stealing your credentials and suddenly you have a compromised network credential set because someone logged in from their personal computer into a corporate asset. Corporate asset. So uh, that's where, again, cloud can really, I think, provide some of that benefit and do that conditional access uh, and really strengthen your security posture while also driving the org's goals. In this case, you know, remote work, you can take all of these different signals and really have a real-time continually assessed security posture for any given person slash asset. All right, very good. We're going to go to our Ask a Co-Panel panelist segment, which I love. Um, Chris, I'm going to let you go first. Do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Well, I had a couple as we've been talking through. I'll settle on this one. Um, uh, I'll just flip a coin uh, here. Todd, I'll, I'll, I'll start with you. What is the biggest challenge you face today in regard to end-user computing? Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, access issues. And so usually... Um, I'm always having a troubleshoot access issues to a particular application. And so that's one of my biggest pain points. And so we try to be as responsive as possible, but you know, it does create a lot of service now tickets for us. Sahan? Biggest issue for end user computing for us, I would, from my perspective, uh, access is one, but also uh, just overall, not quite asset management, but consistent application of things like third-party patches and, and security patches. I think historically that was an area we struggled. It's improved significantly. Um, now we're regularly getting those pushed out on time accurately. Patch management QA is, is great, uh, but getting the reporting on that from multiple sources and having a proper source of truth for that is I think a, a big thing now to report on it. I mean, it's great that we're doing it, but we also have to prove it. And there's a little bit of that, you know, infrastructure does the work, InfoSec is supposed to validate. Great, so are we validating here or here um, and finding a way to make that easy and actually consistently telling an accurate picture without false positives. Very good, Todd, you have a question for one or both of your co-panels. Uh, you know what, I, I think just, uh... When it comes to trying to find IT security engineers that have cloud experience, uh, we tend to see some pretty big price tags. I'm seeing salary bands in the 150K to 175K for security engineers that do have cloud security experience. And obviously, that's not our pay scale ranges. And how are you guys tackling some of the challenges? So, uh, Sahan, I'll start with you first. Uh, number one, I, I 
always open up our interview process with what the mission and the vision and the culture is, uh, because I think regardless of your role, if you're not about what we're about, um, you know, at an org level and at a team level, that's okay. It just might not be a good fit for you. And I'd rather have you invested and happy in working here versus you're really skilled. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in right person, right seat, right time. Uh, and so that helps, I think, weed out part of that, that conversation. Um, you know, this is really about doing whatever we can for the, the kids that we serve, the populations we serve all around, it's not just San Diego, but all over. Uh, and then the other thing that I really look at is tying into that culture. Uh, am I willing to train someone if we aren't able to afford someone that already knows it? And that's, I'm a big believer in training, honestly, um, going to especially security conferences uh, and just giving someone the room to grow and the time to grow and having that more coaching mentality of here are some resources. Let me walk you through it. Let me work with you. Here are some here are one on ones where we can go into some of the specifics. Um, just yesterday, one of my resources, uh, you know, they had some Azure AD experience, but I had asked them. I gave them a task specifically so they could learn a little bit more deeper in the stack of, hey, here's what we have in place. Go test some of these hypotheses, uh, hypotheses, and uh, also validate that we actually do have some of these other recommendations in place uh, because these are really valuable and give us not just some great telemetry, but also other signals of risk being realized. And so um, that gives them also that growth mindset and that opportunity to grow with us. Uh, and so sometimes that they see the benefit of that. And even if they don't stay with us for forever, you know, that's, I understand that that's part of, part of life. And uh, I, I love Ted Lasso. I love the quote of, you know, a good mentor, you know, wants you to stay grow A great mentor knows that you eventually will most likely. So um, working within that, how do I, as a leader, put them in that position to gain those skills if they don't already have them? And if that's what we're working with, if we can't afford people that have those talent sets, so be it. We'll help them develop it. Chris, any thoughts there? Yeah. So uh, I would say uh, from an internal IGEL sort of employee kind of hiring things, and we, we you know, we, we have roles in various parts of the organization, but I really like what Sahan said, you know, what you understand what our mission is. Uh, IGEL's mission, we want to be the number one endpoint OS out there uh, and, and from a, you know, provide the best security, the best management and the user experience all wrapped up in one. That's really the focus. And there's a lot underneath that. Um, but uh, but I also work in an organization where there's an incentive-based component to that. When you are out there trying to help educate the world on what we can do, what solutions we can, uh, problems we can solve, for example, some of the challenges that these guys face on a daily basis with the teams. Um, but at the end of the day, I think, you know, knowing that there is that that opportunity, uh, but also do you want to be part of, of this mission? Do you want to believe in, in what we're trying to do um, and uh, and finding that right person, you know? Uh, there's plenty of opportunity out there, uh, and if that's your focus is that, that's fine. It may not be the right fit, um, but I, I'd certainly echo some of the things that have uh, already been mentioned. So, I got to become a cloud security engineer, and right? Uh, I mean, that's my salary's <laughs> going out there. I already signed up for some training. <laughs> there you go. 
Um, Sahan, I know you slid a question uh, in before, but I'm going to give you a shot for another one. Um, so what do you got for either of your co-panelists or both? Yeah, I, I did send it out. I'm hoping they didn't uh, didn't chew on it too much. Um, so my apologies for that. I, I do really want to hear, especially from uh, Chris's perspective on the vendor side, but also Todd, obviously, is, um, you know, personally, like I mentioned earlier in our discussion, uh, that was a really big paradigm shift for me of embracing the cloud. Uh, and I still remember when I was sitting in uh, at my last firm in my boss's office, uh, actually, no, the CEO's office, having this conversation about why I was so against moving to Exchange 365. And uh, it was going to be such a pain and we don't know what we're doing. And it's so, you know, and, and it was a really good heart to heart of, um, you know, again, look at these benefits and talk through a lot of the talking points that we've gone over on this discussion. Uh, and we're tech people, right? So I'm curious on what are your talking points when you're dealing with stakeholders who are still in that more traditional mindset of we have our firewalls out here and everything behind that is safe and secure and, you know, the cloud is scary and, and et cetera. How do you approach those conversations with um, other business stakeholders? Chris? Uh, great question. Um, I think flexibility, I think, let me start with that word. And what I mean by that is um, from Igel's perspective, what are we trying to, uh, what's our biggest competitor? Uh, number one, it's the status quo. I've always done windows on the endpoint. Why would I want to change? Uh, I've always done firewalls and everything's inside these walls. Uh, why would I try to, you know, uh, well, at some point, something's going to force you to reconsider those the, the status quo. Um, from Igel's perspective, some of the challenges are I can't get new endpoints because uh, the vendors don't have them. The, the chips aren't available or whatever. Uh, well, there's a bunch of devices that are four or five years old that maybe you could just rethink what you have on there originally and, and give them additional life. Well, what does that do for you? Saves you a ton of money. Uh, free that up to invest in the cloud. You know, if I don't have to spend millions of dollars on refreshing endpoints and I can save money there uh, and I can go into an OPEX model as, as uh, Todd and others have alluded to here, uh, that rethinks things. Uh, but from a security perspective, uh, I cut my teeth early on in the world of, of IGEL in federal government. I walked in and every time I put IGEL on something, it was getting scanned. Are you, can we trust this? Can we trust this? And then I'm like, all right, it looks good. Fine. What can what user experience can we deliver? What can you get me to? Uh, but knowing that IGEL gives you a ton of options. Your data can be here on-prem, hybrid, and fully 100% cloud. We really don't care. We'll get you there either way. And we can do that whether your office is at home, whether it's in the coffee shop or a share workspace at, or in the traditional walls of the building uh, and have an endpoint that can be managed securely. So, uh, and is risk mitigant uh, you know, in terms of that, in terms of resistant to some of those attacks that would compromise that endpoint, make it unusable and throw up some kind of ransomware message. Uh, we focus a lot uh, of, of that. So, um, there's a lot we could talk about on that topic, Sahan. So I'll, I'll pause because I, I certainly want to hear what Todd has to say. I look at it from a strategy perspective that if an organization wants to be uh, highly competitive, very agile, looking at the whole uh, landscape, uh, that you really don't have much of a choice, but you have to go into the cloud. And it's almost kind of using technology as a competitive method. 
And so when we look at uh, all the space out there, you know, there's a ton of healthcare providers out there. It lo all looks like we're doing the same thing, but we're going to be the ones that are going to be on the bleeding edge of being able to offer new services, new capabilities, new patient treatments. And so I look at the cloud as kind of an application platform of being able to take these uh, applications and almost kind of a plug and play type of environment to give you that agility that, you know what, we can use this for a while because all these old uh, applications that we pick up have a finite time. Uh, we might keep something around for two years. We might keep something around for six years. Uh, we might be changing uh, to adapt to our healthcare environment because the reality is everybody wants healthcare in their this, this is how people want to manage their healthcare. And what can we do to make ourselves more mobile uh, for our patients to have better access to healthcare and produce better patient outcomes? And so that's why I'm a huge proponent for uh, cloud. And I talk about the benefits. And sure, there's some negative things that do happen, but really that's kind of some of the operator errors. It's no different than buying a brand new BMW car. Uh, you know, if you're driving at 90 miles per hour down your neighborhood street, of course, you're probably going to most likely have an accident. doesn't mean BMW is a bad car. It's really an operator of air. And when we hear these stories about bad cloud stories about this and that happen, that's really an operator air, not the organization itself. All right. Very good. Well, we have time for what I'll call a lightning round uh, of, of final uh, advice. And... Uh, I'd like to position it this way. Let's think of a CISO at a comp comparably sized healthcare organization who, uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit to Sahan's point. Um, maybe it's pro-cloud, but maybe you're seeing some resistance uh, in the organization. What would your best piece of advice be to help convince uh, the powers that be that this is something worth looking into? Uh, Todd, let's start with you. It comes down to education and having the benefits of it and kind of reflecting on ourselves of, you know, what are we doing today and could that be better over here? And, and really leveraging those benefits and understanding the scalability and also uh, just from the, the support perspective, can we make it a better experience for our end users? And hands down, the answer is yes. So it's interesting, Sahan, if the, C if the CISO is a proponent, usually we would think that's one of the sticking points is security. So if the CISO is saying, let's do this, I mean, what do you talk, What do you say to someone who's still got reservations? So I, some of my other areas that across other organizations I've seen as um, needing education, as Todd put it, um, compliance and legal, right? They're not tech folks. And so that's yeah, at the end of the day, to this hypothetical CISO, you're a, you're a business stakeholder at the end of the day. You need to frame it as a business decision and as business risk and benefits and really drive the conversation around that versus the intricate nuances of different cloud providers and latency, right? That they don't care about that. That's our job to advise and guide and provide strategy and a roadmap and make it very clear that it is an intentional decision and is one that provides business value and actually reduces risk versus um, making it a very technical discussion. That's that's something you should iron out with um, the rest of the uh, IT stakeholders and, and show that kind of unified, here's where we'd like to go and why, here are all the benefits, here are the risks if we don't, 
and again, just really structure it in that in that business case uh, scenario to drive really transformative change like that. Chris, let's frame it up maybe a little different for you. If there is concern uh, around security with going to the cloud, let's say there are voices that want to go to the cloud, but there's concern around security, especially the endpoints. What's your messaging there? So I was thinking this through as listening to, to Todd and Sahan. Um, a couple of things. Uh, I mean, certainly we have a, a plethora of information on IGEL from a security perspective, getting comfortable with the operating system. Uh, a couple of things. Uh, it is a read-only system. Uh, you just can't go install stuff on it. Uh, so starting from that perspective and being able to lock it down, but really knowing who our partners are in this world that we live in. Uh, there's a great program we call Agile Ready, uh, and we it, we can't do it alone. Chances are the vendors that you're already working with, many of them are already working with Agile. So the comfort factor that from a security perspective uh, or versus interoperability perspective, uh, it's Agile Plus. Uh, we have hardware vendors that you may have already gone down the path with, knowing that their devices can be uh, used or repurposed and, and successfully run the operating system. And then from that perspective, knowing that they will be able to handle the work uh, the workflows. At the end of the day, uh, think through the workflow that you're trying to provide to the user to be able to do their job, uh, whether they're in the uh, registration area or in surgery, whatever it might be, has to work, period. Um, and so knowing that Agile partners with the likes of the big three that you meant that we've already talked about, um, plus many others, peripherals, all that matters. Um, and so um, somebody asked a question about, you know, ROI, TCO. I put a, a link to a, a great place on our website to kind of go through and see some of that. Uh, so I, I'll, I should be able to see it and on a sustainability question, but it gives you that flexibility to be able to know that the operating system is not going to get compromised um, and I can manage it anywhere it decides to to go and I can control what the user experience is going to be like. Plus, I have a path for the future, whether I change that device and just move the licensing over or um, uh, or I just maintain what I have for for many years uh, over the time. So. All right. Very good. Well, that's about all we had time for today. Regarding continuing education, you could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox on our team and go to our website to view upcoming webinars. Register. I want to thank our panel very much, Todd Bell, Sahan Fernando, and Chris Feeney. I want to thank iGel Technology for sponsoring and you for attending. But with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. So much. Yeah.